listening to Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees. Today, we are talking to Dr. John Doring White in the University of South Carolina's Department of Social Work. John researches undocumented populations in Central America, specifically people who move through non-governmental shelters in Mexico. We're talking to him today about his recent work co-producing the documentary Border South and, ho- and on Hostile Terrain 94, an exhibit happening around the country that's currently in Columbia, South Carolina. Both projects are in collaboration with the Undocumented Migration Project, an anthropological research group that documents the human items left behind by migrants who disappear in the desert of Arizona. Border South is directed by Raul Opaz Pastrana. Your host for today is me, Aidan Thomason. Here's my conversation with John about displaced persons in Mexico, Border South, and Hostile Terrain 94. I'm sitting here today with Dr. John Doringwhite. He is a professor in the social work department at the University of South Carolina, and he does a lot of work with undocumented migrants at the southern border. So, John, could you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the work that you do? Yeah. First of all, thanks for having me and talking to me um, here, in my, here in my office. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Yeah, so I, I do work on primarily around how social service organizations and particularly how humanitarian organizations provide assistance to people who are in the process of making undocumented journeys. So you, so most of my work has focused on um, non-governmental migrant shelters in Mexico that help people who are, who are journeying through Mexico. And I focus on kind of the everyday politics of that aid work. So how it is that organizations navigate the kind of legal ambiguities of um, providing aid to people who are simultaneously being hunted by the Mexican government for detention and deportation, and what it's like to to work kind of in parallel with or at, in the same kind of social space as smugglers um, and other people who are, are in the business of helping people um, move through Mexico and get through checkpoints and that kind of thing. So that that's the bulk of my work is, is kind of the everyday politics of this ethically fraught space of humanitarian aid. And a lot of that revolves around, or you know, a, a, an important storyline that, that my research follows is the exportation or outsourcing of immigration enforcement south through Mexico over the past really 15 or 20 years, but especially during the Obama administration, then obviously with Trump and, and Biden as well. And so that that revolves around basically the United States government providing technical assistance, if not outright funding for the Mexican government to intensify immigration enforcement in various ways. The idea of stopping people in Mexico before they can reach the U.S.-Mexico border. So that's a little bit about about my work. Yeah, that's a really interesting subject that I've learned a little bit about. Just the, the idea that especially like governments like the U.S., Canada and Europe are able to stop people from like they have all of these legal pathways theoretically once you get here but they stop people from ever getting to that point in like increasingly complicated ways which is kind of terrifying I think as we're moving forward with immigration in the world yeah and it's it's disconcerting because of how it's so often couched in humanitarian terms at least in Mexico right and and in the name of development as well right so in the name of creating safer pathways for migrants so they don't have to ride on the train or so they don't have to hire a smuggler, we're going to stop people here. Um, or we're going to you know, fund checkpoints along railways and highways um, so that we can stop people from stealing from trains and from semi-trucks um, and, and facilitate you know, a more modernized trade route between you know, Latin America yeah. and North America. So it's couched oftentimes in these seemingly positive thing, uh, discourses of development and humanitarianism. 
So something I think before we get into kind of the stuff that we're going to talk about that you've been working on lately, I just want to kind of let you explain the situation for people that are moving through these spaces that you've worked in. So our show specifically focuses on refugees and a lot of times it's people that specifically have that that legal category of yeah. refugee and have that status. So could you kind of explain a lot of people that are moving through Latin America do not have any kind of status but still are moving for a lot of the same reasons a lot of times like sometimes it's economic work but sometimes it's also I would be killed if I were at home but I haven't been able to prove that to a government so could you kind of explain what situations cause people to be in those spaces in Mexico that you're talking about yeah sure so most of the people that access migrant shelters in Mexico are coming from the northern triangle of Central America so predominantly Honduras but also Guatemala and El Salvador but also people are passing through from all over the world I mean you have Ukrainians right now who are, who are traveling through Mexico to, to reach the US Mexico border most people are have you know are, are not being recognized as refugees within Central America and therefore are traveling as migrants slash asylum seekers. And the boundaries between economic migration and forced displacement or, um, you know, fleeing for persecution are, are really blurry. And one of the things that that my research is shifting towards somewhat is looking at how climate change intersects with this dynamic as well, where someone who has experienced crop failure um, over the three years because of inconsistent rains or the, you know, increased um, frequency of, of major storms is forced to move to first a, a, a more urban area to look for work. This urban area might be controlled by gangs or the neighborhood where they're in might be controlled by gangs. And then as a newcomer, they're unfamiliar and therefore are more vulnerable to, to threats and, and coercion from gangs or from corrupt officials or police officers. And so in this way, you know, what was a, a climate migration story becomes an economic migration story becomes a political persecution story and they all route you know wrap up together in, in complicated ways for most people and so yeah most people that that pass through migrant shelters most people that i talk to in migrant shelters um don't fit neatly into these boxes of economic migrant or asylum seeker yeah so th that's a little bit um most of the people that are passing through migrant shelters are men there's oftentimes a um an assumption that an, or a common narrative is that women and children, it's safer for women and children to travel with a smuggler or with a guide. That's not always true. Children and women do pass through migrant shelters. And one of the interesting things in, in terms of what we were talking about earlier is that the Mexican government has increasingly, especially during the pandemic, after detaining families, particularly women and children, has sent them to these non-governmental migrant shelters because their shelters are at capacity or they've limited the capacity in the context of COVID. And so that has meant that in some cases, more entire families are being sent to migrant shelters directly by the Mexican government and kind of dropping them off there. And there's not much follow up or anything. Mm -hmm. um, predominantly men, most people uh, pass through migrant shelters very quickly. They're there for a few hours, maybe. They often get a, a bite to eat, maybe receive some first aid attention and take a nap or in a shower, clean up. Um, maybe wash their clothes. Most shelters put a time limit on how long people can stay. So one to two days. During the pandemic, many shelters stopped letting people stay overnight. And so they were just these kind of rapid pass through spaces. But there are also plenty of shelters in Mexico that provide long-term aid to people. One of the areas of my research that I've focused on is, is that transition as the Mexican government has increasingly focused on 
keeping Central Americans in Mexico. More people have been pursuing humanitarian legal recognition, whether as refugees or recipients of a humanitarian visa, which is like the U visa in the U.S. in Mexico. And oftentimes people will stay long term within shelters as they're navigating that that process. So that's a little bit about, about migrant shelters in Mexico and who's passing through them and where they're coming from. Gotcha. Thank you. Yeah. I do want to kind of use that as a springboard to talk about border south um, first, and then we can talk about hostile terrain after. Yeah. But that was very helpful just as background context. So could you just first of all, could you explain what border south is? So it's a documentary that you worked on, um, mm-hmm. and I saw it um, at the Museum of Art a few weeks ago. So could you just kind of talk about the project itself. Yeah, yeah. So Border South is a film made by Raul Paz Pastrana, who's a, a filmmaker originally from northern Mexico, lived in New York for a long time, now is in Denver. And he, I got involved with Border South. So well, let me just say what Border South is. Border South is a documentary that kind of parallels the logic of prevention through deterrence on the U.S.-Mexico border, mm-hmm. which is, I'll define what that is, and then um, how that has been implemented implemented in similar ways in Mexico, basically what I've been talking about right now, right? The idea of intensifying immigration enforcement in strategic areas in the name of deterring people from making the crossing at all. This has happened on the U.S.-Mexico border by intensifying immigration enforcement in urban areas. The idea being that if people are, if it's harder to cross in urban areas, people will go around cities and cross through more isolated, hostile terrain where crossings take longer, they're more dangerous, and that that will be a deterrent, that people will, will decide, well, it's better not to cross than to risk my life. But of course, people don't, you know, make undocumented journeys because they, you know, they, they don't necessarily have that choice, right? People are fleeing for their lives. And so people are forced to, under a logic of prevention and deterrence, make much more riskier, lengthy, and deadly journeys, often through very inhospitable desert environments. And so my dissertation advisor was Jason DeLeon, who's the director of the Undocumented Migration Project. He was at Michigan, where I was, and now he's at UCLA. And the Undocumented Migration Project has focused on documenting the consequences of prevention through deterrence in the Sonoran Desert of southern Arizona, south of Tucson. Raul heard about Jason's research and the work of the Undocumented Migration Project and reached out to him and said, hey, would you want to make a film about this? That was back in like 2014. And when I was kind of developing my dissertation research in 2015, Jason and I and, and other colleagues, including Amelia Frank Vitale, who's at, now at Princeton, ran a, a field school with students in Palenque, Chiapas, where we were kind of looking, trying to interview people about the their experiences with the intensification of immigration enforcement in southern Mexico. So we were kind of making these, kind of connecting the dots between what had been happening on the U.S.-Mexico border and then what was beginning to happen in southern Mexico. This was in the wake of the unaccompanied minors crisis in 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. Raul came, had, had already started filming with Jason. He came and visited that field school and filmed with us. And then after that field school, I started my dissertation field work. And shortly, and so we had kind of talked like, well, maybe we, maybe there's something to collaborate on in terms of where you're at. And shortly after I started field work, a man named Gustavo was shot through the chest by railway guards. The shelter I work is like right by the railway train, the tracks. You can see the train pass by. You saw it in the documentary. Mm-hmm. And 
so after after that happened, I reached out to Raul and said, hey, this, you know, this happened where the shelter is trying to kind of draw attention to what's been happening. Do you think you might want to come and, and film? And so he did. And he came uh, two weeks after Gustavo was released from the hospital. He spent two weeks in a coma and then a co- several more weeks um, hospitalized, recovering from a collapsed lung, shot in the chest. And after that, Gustavo's story became a part of, of the film. It in many ways encompassed these linkages, right? The Railway guards had been hired during this uptick in immigration enforcement, policing along railways. Border South is a documentary that ties together these three spaces, the U.S.-Mexico border through Jason's research, the story of Gustavo in central Mexico, which is where the shelter where I've been doing fieldwork is located, and then the experiences of a variety of different migrants as they're crossing Mexico. So he followed Gustavo's story, he followed Jason doing his work, and then he we also made several trips to other to a variety of other shelters across Mexico and did filming with people that were in the process of passing through these shelters. And so there's kind of three storylines in the film, Jason, Gustavo, and then what Raul refers to as the chorus, um, which is kind of tries to communicate just how many people are passing through Mexico at one time. I think having seen the documentary, the three storylines are really seamless together, I think, and I really enjoyed how it was able to capture the the consequences of these policies at the same time that people are experiencing them. Because you're watching like extremely different parts of the journey at the same time, but it kind of has the effect of showing the impact of of what's happening on a broader scale. So I think like that storytelling device was very useful and very unique. So I guess, could you kind of talk a little bit more about the impact of of kind of showing the consequences and the story and then Gustavo kind of as a, I don't know the right words, but maybe like a perfect victim in the sense that he has media attention. He has this really horrible thing that's happened to him that's been well documented Mm -hmm. and he's still waiting for months at the same time. So yeah, so I, I, I mean, I'll say that you know, Raul. The storyline of the of the film is is really Raul's work, and I'm I'm also so impressed with how with how he stitched these ideas together. I remember seeing the first rough cut and being like, "Wow, this is not what I expected. This is much better than I expected." Like, no shade on Raul, but I was just blown away by his mm-hmm. ability to tie these storylines together. And he, we worked a lot on that too, and kind of making you know, because it requires piecing a lot of things together, and and the way that this the the film is put together requires the viewer to put things together and to make the connections. One of the things that he really wanted to, was committed to, and which I really appreciate and and can resonate with as an ethnographer, is that it's an observational film. There are no expert interviews, really. There's nobody telling you exactly what you should know or what you should take from it. The viewer is left to stitch the pieces together and make the connections. There's some, you know, textual data that, that is provided, but it's very minimal in terms of like when this happened, you know, the time frame and whatnot. But yeah, I, I mean, that's one of the, as far as a storytelling device goes, I was also, um, or have been impressed with with how Raul was able to do that. Think about it as he was filming as well. And we talked a lot while we were filming about, you know, how these pieces relate together. And, and another angle to that is the feeling of like disorientation that comes along with migrating through Mexico, where people are often stuck for long periods of time while they're waiting for a train or waiting for, a, you know, an investigation to be completed and so i think that the in a you know kind of poetic way the film does that it it moves all over the place um people are waiting and then things speed up um and also people you know migration is not a linear process people often go 
up a certain amount and then have to go back um, or they're deported, deported and they try again. And so I think having those storylines, kind of the churning that's involved in migration um, represented in a narrative way was really important. And I think that was, I think he did a really good job of, of showing that. As far as Gustavo and the perfect, you know, perfect victim story, it's really interesting because Gustavo is like in many ways not the perfect victim. I think one one thing that the film doesn't really capture is that, you know, if if he were to apply for refugee status in the United States, he probably would never get it. He had a really rough childhood and spent a good amount of time in the criminal world of Nicaragua. And so in many ways, he's not the perfect, you know, he's not the like the dreamer. He, he doesn't fit that perfect migrant narrative or the ideal victim narrative in a lot of ways, at least outside of Mexico. In Mexico, though, though he's one of these rare people who experienced a, an incredibly life-threatening offense and was able to be connected to resources and attention, whether from local reporters or for, from Raul and myself, that brought awareness to his case from various different directions, most importantly from a local politician who was running for office, running for re-election, um, who kind of used Gustavo's experience to, uh, you know, latched onto his story, which was beneficial for this politician, was also beneficial for Gustavo in the sense that he was able to pressure, put pressure on Mexico's National Migration Institute, which is like the equivalent of, of immigration and customs enforcement in the U.S., mm -hmm. to say, you need to speed up this case and make a decision given what's happened to this guy. So Gustavo having this politician on his side and this like and the media attention on his side, what what would you say that that says about how the system is working for people that don't have visible stories? Yeah, it doesn't work for people that don't have visible stories. It is a system that is it's very easy within the current and this is true in the US and it's true in, in Mexico as well. It's very easy um, there, there are so many different bureaucratic roadblocks and loopholes that allow for a person's case to be either prolonged to the extent that it's not worth it to wait that long. Like people can only wait and put their lives on hold for so long. Or there are loopholes in terms of what is considered a legitimate or illegitimate form of victimhood. So in the, the Mexican context, I've talked with a lot of people who have bruises and cuts and broken bones and buckshot even in their arms from being shot by a shotgun and x-rays of that buckshot. But those injuries are not deemed life-threatening enough by the Mexican government to warrant the receipt of a humanitarian visa. Gustavo's case was exceptional because he had this major injury, right, and was in the hospital for all this time, and he couldn't move. He, you know, physically was recovering and was not able to go back to work. He very much wanted to. I think if it would have been a slightly less severe injury, he would have been gone and would have just dropped the humanitarian visa. Because the other thing is that the humanitarian visa is not all that great of a benefit. It provides a year of status regularization, which a lot of people use to make it to the U.S.-Mexico border safely by traveling on buses as opposed to traveling on freight trains. It is technically renewable, but it requires you to transfer your case from where the incident happened to where you're staying. Most people don't stay where the incident happened. And... Um, and a lot of the people that are applying for humanitarian visas don't have the kind of social capital or financial resources to to access the kind of legal aid and, and um, organizational support that is really required to, to win a humanitarian visa case. So in most cases, what happens is someone is you know, beat up by cops or is expressed kidnapped by a group. Um, and you don't know whether this group is are, is, you know, the police or a criminal group. It's ambiguous. It's dark. People might be wearing fake uniforms. There's a lot of discourse about fake uniforms. And 
not only that, but you're required to then report this crime to the police, police who you have very good reason not to trust. And so for most people, it's more dangerous. It would be more dangerous to pursue a humanitarian visa or this, the perception that it's more dangerous to pursue a humanitarian visa than it is to just continue the journey and, and you know, try and make it even in spite of what you've experienced. Shifting to a little bit of reception of the film. So what was what's it been like for you and for Raul, especially to to have screenings? I know that COVID has really interrupted that. But yeah, um, now that we're coming out of the Omicron wave and you guys are getting to show the film to people and we saw it in Colombia, what's what's that been like? Yeah, I mean, it's been really fun, it, you know, as an academic, like it's most people I put out articles and and pieces of writing that very few people read and so it's it's really nice to see a project that i'm involved in where people outside of the academic realm are and are um, interacting with it and i appreciate that you know i appreciate that this is a film that does not sugarcoat things and it doesn't like i said before it's not intended for a kind of you know generalized it is intended for a generalized audience but it doesn't try to perform any like explanation of how you should be feeling um, at least explicitly maybe implicitly and so that brings up a lot of interesting feelings um, for people who are watching it there you know I think a lot of people especially people that don't have close connections to to an experience of immigrating other you know family members or, or close friends I think they're they're struck by um, often people often comment on being surprised by like the funny moments in the film or the like kind of lighthearted moments in the film uh, surrounding a broader situation that's like super dark. And I appreciate that in the film and, and that people get that oftentimes that this is a film that tries to portray people who are often pigeonholed into being either pure victims or pure criminalized people. And what the film shows is that that's anything but true. Um, and that, you know, people who are making these journeys are brothers, sisters, cousins, neighbors, um, co-workers, right? They're everyday people who are, are figuring out how to survive and make make it make do. And I think that, that the film, I, I don't know, that's one thing that I've appreciated in terms of hearing people's responses is like, oh, wow, this is, I appreciate the, the humanity, the full humanity of people being represented. Hearing that feels really good. There are also, you know, I, I think another thing that the film doesn't do is tell you how we should move forward. Um, so you often get questions, you know, like, how, well, how should we reform the migration system? Which is a fair question. And I think a lot of us are wondering this and trying to figure that out. And, you know, I think those of us involved in the film aren't necessarily in the in, all that interested in trying to propose particular policy solutions, which can be frustrating for people. You know, people want to have a clear direction forward. And I think, you know, in terms of, like the film stitching storylines together, one of the things that's important to recognize in terms of the situation surrounding undocumented migration through Mexico and in the United States is that, you know, these dynamics have been going on for a long time and the politics surrounding them are, are incredibly complicated. So I think on whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, I think we've tried to stay away from trying to propose any solutions in a, in a clear cut way. And again, that, that can be frustrating for people who are like, no, you, I want to know what what how we can fix this right um so those are a couple things that have come up as like common question common questions or things that people are interested in knowing during screenings but overall it's really enjoyable i think to to share this work with people and to to um to see their reactions as well it's been fun yeah i think in terms of 
of wanting policy reform easy answers. That's one of those things that it just kind of seems the more you look at it that there just aren't any. That it's just such a like it's such a huge convoluted system that's been directed at deterrence for right. the most part. Yeah. And so it's like even if you were to propose those solutions, like what how could you do that in two hours, you know, in, in this film that's telling all of these other stories at the same time? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And across multiple countries and it's yeah, yeah. It's a it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's gonna take like a whole field of a generation of people to figure out what to do with this but yeah yeah maybe we can maybe i know we've already mentioned jason de leon Mm -hmm. um and his work with the undocumented migration project but could you explain a little bit more just because most of our listeners probably haven't seen the film yet what what exactly they do and what their work is like yeah so the undocumented migration project is an an anthropological study of the social process of undocumented migration focused primarily on the the Sonoran Desert of Southern Arizona, as I mentioned before. And it's anthropological in every sense. So when, when I like meet a random person who doesn't know what anthropology is, they tend to think Indiana Jones and like skulls and, and you know, ad- adventures in colonial spaces. And it is that. It has been that. Um, but it's also a lot of other things. So I'm a cultural anthropologist. I do ethnography. I hang out with people and interview them and try to understand their social worlds and how it's changed over time and kind of the everyday politics of how they exist in the world. There are also archaeologists who, you know, pick up artifacts that are left behind and piece together social worlds through those artifacts. And then there are biological anthropologists who um, pick up bones or collect DNA samples to understand how humans have evolved over time or to piece together social worlds from the past through that evidence. Um, and then there are linguistic anthropologists who study focus on everyday interactions around language. And the Undocumented Migra- Migration Project does kind of all those things. So one of the, the major things that, that Jason has done with the UMP, and he was originally trained as an archaeologist and then transitioned into being a, a cultural anthropologist as well. One of the things that the UMP does is um, have students go out into the desert and walk the trails that migrants walk and pick up the belongings that people leave behind in the desert. So water bottles, cans of tuna, backpacks, underwear, toothbrushes, the things that people are carrying with them as they make a six, seven, eight multi-week journey through the desert as a way of documenting, I think, at first and foremost, um, what is happening. Oftentimes these objects simply disappear. The, the desert is not only a harsh environment for people, it's a harsh environment for like man-made objects as well. They literally just, you know, disintegrate in the desert and, and um, become dust. And so, you know, politically, one of the things that the Undocumented Migration Project does is show these objects before they disappear. Um, and then also try to document that process of, of disappearance. So to document how quickly objects go from being, you know, the backpack you're carrying on your back to just a, a mangled mess of straps, right, and, and cloth. And then also documenting how quickly bodies potentially disappear um, and decompose in the desert. And so this is really what the UMP has been moving towards um, in recent years, and this is what Hostile Terrain focuses on, the exhibition, is the decomposition of, of human bodies. So people that die while crossing the border. We have no idea how many people, in fact, have have died crossing the border. Hostile Terrain is an exhibition that consists of 3,200 documented cases of of bodies that have been recovered in this particular stretch of the desert around um, Arizona. But that's a a massive undercount. Um, So one of the scenes at the end of the film is um, students who are running a, a pig experiment. So 
pigs serve as one of like within the, the field of forensics, pigs are often considered a proxy of the human body because there's obviously like clear ethical issues with using real human bodies and leaving them out um, to study decomposition. And so what Jason and, and students and other collaborators have done is kill pigs um, and then film their decomposition in the desert. And one of the key findings is that bodies disappear really quickly. And if they don't disappear altogether, they're scattered throughout a wide array of space, a wide space really quickly to the point where it's, you know, be pretty difficult to to see that there was a body here. And that's portrayed in the film. We, we include some shots of the process of doing that experiment. And we also include shots from a trail cam um, showing vultures and, and other animals eating a pig carcass. And so that's also part of what the UMP has done is to try and one, like draw attention to a social process that is oftentimes marginalized, erased, kept in the dark, oftentimes, you know, by the very people who are doing it. Um, it's a clandestine social process in, in most cases. And then also to to draw attention to the fact that we really don't know how many people have, have died as a consequence of prevention through deterrence since it was implemented in 1994 talking about documenting one of the big things that the undocumented migration project has done is this art exhibit hostile terrain 94 yeah. um which is kind of just I'll let you can explain better than i can but writing toe tags of people that have disappeared in this arizona desert crossing the border and demonstrating visually how many people that we know have gone missing and even how many more we can imagine have gone missing. Mm -hmm. um, so could you kind of talk about putting that together in Colombia? Because it's something that's, it's it's happening simultaneously around the country this yeah. year and next year, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it actually, it's been happening. It, it, this was supposed to roll out um, ahead of the um, presidential election in 2020 and COVID. But so yeah, hostile terrain 94, I've used the term hostile terrain and then mentioned 1994, which is when is the first time that this logic of prevention through deterrence appears as like a clear policy directive. And it is a participatory exhibition that consists of 3,200 toe tags um, that are filled out by hand by volunteers. Um, those toe tags correspond to a database collected by an organization called the Colibri Center, which was started by Robin Reinecke, who's a uh, forensic anthropologist and cultural anthropologist from the University of Arizona. And her research focused on trying to connect the databases from the Pima County Coroner's Office to families of the missing. So the Pima County Coroner's Office has this database of of human remains that have been found in the desert. Many of them are unidentified. And so her work has revolved around linking unidentified remains to families through DNA tests, through just like boots on the ground work. And so the, the Hostile Terrain 94 exhibition is a collaboration between UMP and, and Colibri. Um, and yeah, it's happening or over the past couple of years and moving forward, it's been you know, the idea is to put it up in at least 94 different locations across the globe. And they've gone beyond that now. Columbia is one of the exhibition sites. I was really excited. We were, we have it up at the, um, the Richland County Public Library downtown branch. And I was really glad to be able to put it up there off of campus. Um, we had looked at putting it in like McKissick or in the, the library, which are great spaces. But I think it was, it was really important to me to get it off campus and into a more, a space that's more publicly accessible. For this exhibition, the majority of the toe tags were filled out by U of SC students, although we did run a few different workshops out in the community as well. And that's been a really enriching process. Um, I think you know one of the things that has been interesting seeing this project develop and then 
doing it myself is just how genius of like an organizing tactic it is to to require a lot of people to you know you have to like you have to get a lot of people to fill out all the toe tags which means that you're forced to do the work of spreading the news about you know spreading this this message and telling people about this exhibition and all the politics that surround it if you're going to put this up so it's no easy undertaking but it's also you know a really like wonderful strategy for getting people involved in a really low stakes way all you do is transfer you know information from one piece of paper to another piece of paper but there's a lot of toe tags and so it's been it's been a cool experience for me as a social work professor as well to think about like all right how do you integrate organizing and community building through this kind of um, political advocacy work that also reflects and draws on really cutting edge anthropological research so that that's been really enriching for me as someone who's situated in social work and anthropology to to see these two worlds combine and and, um, intersect in interesting ways I know at least the ones on campus did well because I know that you guys finished uh, a week early yeah. when you were doing the <laughs> workshops. Because I remember I ran after class and it, it was already done. But what has it, what's it been like having the workshops and seeing people and like engage with it? Is that, are you having, are people having, seeming to be moved by what they're doing, like the physical act of, of yeah. writing? Yeah, right. I mean, so the physical act of writing is is really simple, right? And mundane, as, as I said, but it's also, you you know, you have this moment of realization that the information you're writing down is a person, is a brother, a sister, a neighbor. And that really hits people. It, it, does, it hits you really hard. The exhibition consists of unidentified toe tags and identified toe tags. And I think both hit in different ways. You know, that part of the we're on a timeline, right, to get these toe tags done. And so there's simultaneously this feeling of like, I need to get these all filled out and do as many as possible. And then you realize, oh my God, I'm just passing over people's experiences, you know, in a way. And treating people just like numbers or, you know, not really reflecting on on their individual humanity as you're in the process of, you know, filling out these toe tags, you kind of get into this pattern of um, like a flow state almost. And then all of a sudden it hits you like, holy shit. You know, this is one tag of 3,200 and that 3,200 is a major undercount and kind of, you know, you go from that one tag, that one person to the broader magnitude and you realize that this is just one slice of the border. This doesn't, you know, this doesn't in, um, involve Texas. It doesn't involve all the other states where people are experiencing similar dynamics in terms of prevention through deterrence. And so it brings up a lot of emotions and it's, and like, I think a lot of those emotions revolve around that kind those kind of incongruent feelings of like enjoying writing something down and having this like very completable task, but then also realizing that this is like a really dark task. And I think that's a good thing. I think that is pretty reflective of, of what it means to live in the United States right now and what it's been like for a long time in terms of, you know, it's very easy to to think in terms of big statistics and broad statistics. And it's easy to forget about the people that are washing dishes and building houses um, and cleaning yards and teaching in schools and running businesses um, and raising families on that human level in the process of daily life. And so this exhibition forces people to sit down, to put their phones down and to um, you know really focus in on on one person while also feeling that pressure to like move quickly through these tags. So that that incongruity I think is really powerful. 
having it in Colombia specifically, so we're obviously very, we're far away from Arizona, like several thousand miles away. And so I think a lot of times in states that don't border Mexico, it can be a little bit of cognitive dissonance in terms of like, this is happening there. And so even though we're in the same country, it's it's thousands of miles away. It doesn't affect me. So what do you think the impact of of doing this project in Colombia and in South Carolina specifically has on people? Yeah, we'll see. I, I think, you know, I think that at the same time that like the Richland, I, well, let's see, how do I answer this? So for one, you know, South Carolina, places that are not bordering the, the U.S.-Mexico border, like South Carolina or like Michigan, where I come from, still have major Latinx populations, right? And have for a long time. South Carolina is often considered like a new destination state. So in some ways, as a consequence of this uptick in, in immigration enforcement along the border, people have circular migration between U.S. and Mexico stopped or decreased in the late 90s and early 2000s. And, and places like California and Texas and Arizona kind of filled up in some ways. And people sought other destination spaces like Illinois and Ohio and Nebraska and South Carolina and Georgia. And so it, you know, I think in that sense, bringing an exhibition like Hostile Terrain or a documentary like Border South to Columbia, South Carolina isn't all that weird, you know, because immigrant communities are everywhere in this country, not just in those, you know, not just in the Southwest. On the other hand, right, we're in a a state that is pretty deep red politically. And, and so, you know, one thing, and we're, we're in a time of, you know, severe political division. And so I'm kind of surprised that like the exhibition is still standing in some ways. <laughs> I've, you know, wondered if people would, you know, vandalize it or complain about it or do something against the exhibition. And so far that hasn't happened. I think part of that is that it's somewhat tucked away in the library and the library itself maybe is self-selective in terms of who's going to a library. But so far it's been smooth. And I think also Columbia is is a little bit of a bubble, right? As, as far as being a, a university town at the same time, that's like the center of politics in South Carolina. And so, you know, and, and I think in some ways I haven't, I haven't tried too hard to like boost the visibility of the exhibition too hard and sort of in some ways in, out of fear of what might happen, but also nothing has happened so far. And that, that's a good thing. I think that speaks to another dimension of the exhibition, which is like, regardless of what your political beliefs are, if we should intensify immigration enforcement and, and ramp up deportations, or if we should be, you know, expanding sanctuary and um, expanding access to, to legal status, I think the exhibition hits you no matter what. You can, you can, you know, empathize with the experience of losing a loved one and not knowing where the hell they are or what happened to them. And so I think it is equalizing in a lot of ways as well. It, it's really impactful in that way and that it speaks to people regardless of, of what their political beliefs are. Um, at the same time that it, it does have a clear political message to, to draw attention to the, the, the human consequences of this particular U.S. Um, immigration enforcement policy and tactic. Yeah, people might disagree on, on what the tactics to change this should be, but it's very difficult to, to look at just these are people that have disappeared and say and, and challenge that specifically because that's just yeah. a fact and it's something that is a tragedy and that we have caused. So that's kind of a difficult, I think it's difficult to challenge in a way, even if people might be irritated that it's there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I just wanted to ask, like, quickly, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you wanted to bring up before we wrap up? 
No, I mean, I, I, one thing I appreciate, you know, at the beginning, you were talking about the fact that this is a podcast that, you know, focuses on refugees. Um, and I appreciate you starting it with kind of framing it around that way that, the, you know, people that are passing through migrant shelters, people that are crossing the U.S.-Mexico border are not, do not have that legal status and the privilege of having that legal status before leaving their countries. And and so, I, you know, I think that, that that's a, a, just a really important point to kind of circle back to and to to recognize that that the refugee legal status is really constraining in a lot of ways. And that's a, a dimension of that, you know, an aspect of my work that I think is really important and that hostile training border south don't necessarily speak to directly, but it's there. And the you know, in the ways that that aid organizations have to decide which cases to take on or not, whether they in terms of whether they fit neatly into particular narratives of victimhood or deservingness. And um, so I appreciate you starting with that and Hopefully this also connects the dots a little bit with the, the theme of your podcast. But yeah, thank you. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, that's something that I think I know I have and then other students that work on it as well have kind of been realizing that the more we like get into these issues, the more it's like, oh, these the, like these categories are very segmented and that's not what it actually looks like. So yeah. Yeah. And just a practical question. Um, how long is Hostile Terrain up in the library? Yeah. It's up till the end of the month, so another week. Okay. So if you're listening now, go now. Yes, go <laughs> While now. you can. That was Professor John Doring White talking about his work on the documentary Border South and the exhibit Hostile Terrain 94. Hostile Terrain 94 is up until Thursday, March 31st in the main downtown branch of Richland Library in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're in Columbia this week, go see it right now before it's gone. If you're interested in watching Border South, check out the link in our show notes. If you liked this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, and rate us in the comments below. If you like our show, please write us a review on iTunes. It helps us get discovered by more people just like you. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on social media at Refuge Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Share this episode with your friends if you liked it. Your host for this week was me, Aiden Thomason. This episode was edited by Diana Clark and produced by Isha Hegday and Jackie Burnett. Our executive producer is Aiden Thomason. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one. <laughs>